0: Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from history to business and everything in between including your stories and we'd love to hear them send them to ouramericannetwork.org and we'll put them up on the air you are the hour in Our American Stories and it's time now for our Rule of Law series where we tell stories about what this rule of law thing is and what happens when it's absent or present in our lives. Today's edition comes from a Wisconsin father named Michael Bell.
1: I got a phone call at 2 a.m. on November 9, 2004. It was my oldest daughter and she said, Dad, you need to come to the hospital right away. Michael's been shot. When I arrived, I saw that the district attorney was huddled with about five police officers. The last time I saw my son alive was on a gurney. His head was wrapped in a big towel and blood was coming out of it. I had learned that an officer had put a gun directly to Michael's right temple. The gun misfired and then did it again, and this time he shot him. From the beginning, I cautioned patients, though Michael's mother and sister were an uproar. But as an Air Force officer and a pilot, I knew the way that safety investigations are conducted and I was thinking that this was gonna be conducted the same way, yet within 48 hours I got the message. The police had cleared themselves of all wrongdoing. In 48 hours, they hadn't even taken statements from several witnesses. Crime lab reports showed that my son's DNA or fingerprints were not on any gun or holster. Even though some of the police involved in Michael's shooting had claimed that Michael had grabbed his gun. The officer who killed my son, His name was Albert Gonzalez. He is not only still on the force at 10 years later, he is a licensed um, concealed gun instructor down in the state of Illinois. The Chicago Tribune uh, did an investigative story uh, and he was listed as one of the multiple instructors with documented histories of making questionable decisions about when to use force. From the beginning, um, I allowed the investigation proceed I didn't know it was a sham until many of the facts were discovered, but before long I realized the cover up was underway. I hadn't understood at first how closely related the DA and the police were. During his election campaign for judge, the DA had been endorsed in writing by every police agency in our county. Now he was investigating them and it was a clear conflict of interest. I wanted to uncover the truth, and so our family hired a private investigator who ended up teaming with a retired police detective to launch their own investigation, and they they discovered that the officer who thought his gun was being grabbed, in fact, had caught his gun on a broken car mirror. The emergency medical technicians who arrived later found the officers fighting with each other over what had happened, and we ended up filing a 1,100-page report detailing Michael's killing with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. It took us six years to get a wrongful death lawsuit settled and our family received $1.75 million. I wasn't satisfied by a long shot. I used my entire portion of that money and much more of my own to continue a campaign for more police accountability. I wanted to change things for everyone else so no one else would have to go through what our family did. And we did our research. In 129 years since police and fire commissions were created in the state of Wisconsin we could not find one single ruling by a police department, an inquest, or a police commission that a shooting by a police officer was found unjustified. There was one shooting we found in 2005 that was ruled justified by the department and an inquest jury, but additional evidence provided by citizens caused the DA to charge the officer. The city of Milwaukee settled with a confidentiality agreement in that particular case, and the facts of that remain sealed, and the officer involved and eventually committed suicide, so you can see there's a problem. To me, the problem over the decades, in other words, was a near total lack of accountability for wrongdoing. If police on duty believe they can get away with almost anything, they will act accordingly. As a military pilot... I knew that if law professionals investigated police-related deaths like, say, the National Transportation Safety Board investigated aviation mishaps, that police-related deaths would be at an all-time low. And So together with a number of other families in Wisconsin, I launched a campaign in Wisconsin legislation calling for a new law that would require outside review of all deaths in police custody. I contacted everybody. I mean, in the beginning, I contacted the governor's office, the attorney general's office, and the U.S. Attorney for Wisconsin. Didn't even bother to return my calls or or letters. then I went further. I contacted Oprah, every Associated Press Bureau in the nation, every national magazine, and every news agency, and I didn't hear a word. But I reached out to Frank Serpico, the famous uh, retired New York police detective, and he helped. He had his own experience with taking on police corruption. I set up billboards and a website. I took out newspaper ads, including national ads in the New York Times and USA Today. And Frank Serpico allowed me to use his endorsement. When police take a life, should they investigate themselves, that's what the ad read. Finally, we began to get some movement. Uh, I was helped by a friendly Republican legislator, his name was Gary Byes, and a Democratic Assemblyman, uh, her name was Chris Taylor. We passed a law that made Wisconsin the first state in the nation to mandate at a legislative level that police-related deaths be reviewed by an outside agency. I need you to know that I'm not anti-cop, and I'm finding that many police want change as well. It was the good officers in the state of Wisconsin that supported our bill from the inside. And it was endorsed by five police unions.
0: And great job on that to uh, Alex and Robbie. And thanks so much to Michael Bell Sr. And condolences for your loss, first of all. I mean, what a thing to learn. And my goodness, we, we found out that the gun got caught in a mirror. Okay, so he thought someone was pulling at the gun. And he found out that's what happened. Why not just say that? It's okay. You made a mistake. You didn't do it on purpose. It's the cover-up that ruins everything, Right. You didn't go out there to kill a kid, and you got to live with it. I mean, the cop who does this has to live with it his whole life an accident. But don't cover it up. The family deserves to know the truth. Everyone does, and you knew the truth. It's a great story, and it's why rule of law matters in everyone's life, and that Wisconsin passed this rule, making all deaths at the hands of an officer, reviewable by an outside party. I'm so proud of the people of Wisconsin and to Michael Bell Sr. Michael Bell Sr.'s story, his son's story. A great legislative story here on Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our series, Energy is Life, where we explore the role of energy in our lives. We use energy every day from cooking, heating, and cooling our homes to traveling and powering our devices. Today, our own Monty Montgomery brings us a story of a business owner in a small town where access to energy is less present in their lives. Here's Monty for 225 miles
2: the state of New York borders Pennsylvania along rolling hills farmland and small hamlets today we hear from one of the individuals living on the border between these states
3: hi I'm Marian Shireko and I live in upstate New York in a little village called Windsor Uh, we have approximately 500 people in in the Windsor area and we're very normal type community. We're not big. We're pretty small. But everybody knows everybody. We're a good neighborhood, a good good community. I've done a lot of different things. I was a little league coach. I worked with the church. I started my own business. I have a small restaurant. And I've been at that for 28 years now. And uh, we just eke out a living
2: a life she's made for herself and her family due to the work ethic she developed as a child working on her father's farm.
3: I grew up on a farm. We milked about 35, 40 cows. My father worked on construction. He uh, belonged to the Seabees in the service. That's what he did. He built, helped build airports in the Aleutian Islands. And when my parents started having a bunch of kids, because it was eight of us, My mom had grown up on a farm. My father had worked on a farm. His mother was a teacher, but they were very poor, and so he went out and worked on the farms. And uh, when they started having a lot of kids, they decided that perhaps they needed a farm because when my mom was growing up during the Depression, she never knew there was a depression because she always had enough food. The only way she knew there was a depression was because my grandfather used to bring people home. And all of a sudden, there'd be extra people for dinner. So, Mom decided we needed to have a farm. Well, Dad, the farm kept all of us grounded because God knows it never made any money. We grew rocks more than we more so than we did hay. It taught me that hard work doesn't hurt you. You don't have to be paid to do it. We never we never got an allowance or anything like that. There was work to be done. You did it. When we moved here to Windsor in 1958, it was kind of a thriving little community, you know? In the village, we had a uh, laundromat. We had three grocery stores, a meat market. Today, we have one grocery store. We don't have a laundromat any longer. We don't have a shoe store. We, We don't have any of that stuff at all. We've gotten smaller and worse. That's where fracking comes in.
2: Two states, one border, and a shared natural resource of natural gas, but a world of difference between the two. Just miles down the road from her, residents of Pennsylvania reap the benefits of natural gas extraction or fracking, and the jobs, energy, and growth it provides. But New York has chosen not to follow suit and has banned the practice. This whole situation has put in jeopardy countless lives that Americans have built. Lives like Marion's, who became a businesswoman to support her family.
3: I own a pizza shank. I waitressed and cooked for many years, many, many years. And it's the type of work that I like. I really like it. So in 1987, I decided I should go to college and I should get a degree uh, get my associates, because, you know, people come up to you and they say, oh, and where did you go to school? Now, you don't want to say to them, I went to high school. You want to say to them, well, of course I have a degree. Doesn't everybody? So I got my degree. I, at that time, I was 47 years old. And uh, it was important to me to do well, and I did. And then after that, I thought to myself, geez, I really ought to own a business so that I'm working for myself. And the woman down the street had this business, the pizza sh- business, and I knew that she really didn't like it. She was really more into computers and I'm more into hands-on. So I went to her and I said to her, Joyce, do you want to rent out the pizza shack for a year so that I can see if I can do it? She was delighted to get out of the business. I was delighted to get in. Start- I went in. She went out the front door, I came in the back door. Well, within three, four months, I had decided that I wanted to buy the place, so I did. We bought it and uh, just started working the pizza place. And going to school gave me the confidence of being able to know if it didn't work, it was going to be okay. But I knew that I could make it. I had taken on a challenge and I had succeeded, so there was no reason why I couldn't succeed in this. I'm a good cook, and I like people. It's a great combination. It works. One of the very best parts of running it was working with the kids, Now I had a lot, a lot of high school kids that worked for me over the years, and they've gone on to be physician assistants, counselors, teachers, police officers, in the service, They've had many, many different kinds of jobs. I allowed them the growth. And I'm a firm believer in positive reinforcement. I believed in that when I was coaching baseball. You don't need to tell somebody when they're doing something wrong. They already know it. You don't even need to tell them how to fix it because they know it. All you need to do is say to them, so what do you think you should do? And I always said to the kids as I was working, now if I was doing this, this is how I would do it. And then I leave it up to them to make the decision that is right to do it the way I want them to do it. Now, if I yell at them, then got, uh, they put their back up, and uh, all of a sudden you have a conflict. You don't want conflict. Conflict is not good. Working together is good.
2: And it isn't just Marion and her employees who come together.
3: I had these, these women that wanted to come because they wanted to talk. And they would come every morning, and I would make breakfast for them really, really cheap. And they would sit there, and they would talk, and they would solve all the world's problems and all the family problems and everything for like two hours every day. On Saturday mornings, once a month, I would have a group of men who came in and had a a meeting. There was about 20 of them that would come in, and they would talk, and they would pray and, and do their singing and this kind of stuff, and... They would have breakfast and they'd be there a couple of hours and then leave. Did they agree on everything? Absolutely not. Did they some of the time they get angry at each other? Sure. But they always came back because it was home.
2: A beautiful home that's becoming less and less viable as Windsor's economy continues to fall.
3: Young kids are not gonna want to come and hang out with my old ladies in the morning. But wouldn't it be nice if there was a place where they could feel that comfort of having a hot chocolate or whatever before they went to school? But if you don't, if, if your place is so small, your area is so small, you're not going to have that. You need it to grow. And in order to grow, you need to have industry. In order to have industry, you've got to have money. Fracking would allow us to have money. Pennsylvania... It's a whole different story down there today than what it was 20 years ago, because of the fracking. Homes are taken care of, businesses have opened. It's a whole different it's a whole different ballgame. People are afraid of it. They're they're basically afraid that fracking is going to ruin their water. We had a gentleman that lived up on the on a hill here, and when the kids were bored. They would go up there and they would light matches by his water because there was so much gas up there that the water would would light up. Now, it's right there. It's not like you have to go down 10,000 feet to bring it up. So it it really is a kind of a catch-22 on it. You can't get it. You can't get what you want because you're not allowed to get it but yet it's right there. For the ones who want it, it would make all the difference in the world to them.
2: Like it has for border town communities in
0: Pennsylvania.
2: For Our American
0: Stories, I'm Monty Montgomery. And great work as always by Monty and a great assist from Joey on this story. And you've been listening to Marion Shireko and she lives in Windsor, New York. And my goodness, Windsor, New York, visit that area one day. I'm very familiar with upstate New York. I grew up in northern New Jersey and know the state well. And these are very small and shrinking towns. This is the story of how one state went and another state went on something that mattered to both and the impact on her life and the life of her community. She grew up on a farm. Hard work doesn't hurt you, she said. I never got an allowance. If there was work, you did it. And we know these people. And all she wants is what's best for her community and her town. The story of Mary Ann here on Our American Stories. Our American stories, and we like telling the stories about all kinds of people the good, the bad, the ugly, and the bizarre. Which brings us to our supreme executive producer and chief proprietor of strategic irrelevance and irreverence, Jesse Edwards, with a story that is sure to tantalize all of your senses about an old school hacker. Take it away.
3: Be completed as Please check the number and dial again.
4: This is the story of a guy known as Captain Crunch. His real name is John Draper. He's legendary in the world of computer programming and hacking the son of an Air Force engineer who himself joined in 1964. While stationed in Alaska, he helped his fellow servicemen make free phone calls home by devising access to a local telephone switchboard.
3: If you'd like to make a call, please hang up and try again.
4: Now, in case there are any young people listening, back before we all had smartphones, we used landlines. Or phones that were attached to the wall by wiring. If you
3: need help, hang up and then dial your operator.
4: And you even had to pay more money to make long-distance calls, God forbid. After the Air Force, John Draper was trying to test the signal strength of one of his own pirate radio stations when he broadcast the phone number for listeners to call in to report the strength of his signal. Well, he got a response from a group of blind kids who told him about a special whistle that could be found inside boxes of Cap'n Crunch breakfast cereal. Here's John Draper.
5: Well, my claim to fame is comes out of a captain crunch whistle box if you hold up one of the holes like this and blow it that's 2600 hertz tone that 2600 hertz tone is what controls the at&t american telephone system and it was developed way back in the 50s got started from this really and i learned about the phone company system and the switching tones and i got a captain crunch whistle from one of the kids. So what kind of mysterious
4: power did this little whistle have over the national phone system? John Draper
5: gives us a basic demonstration. With this, you want to dial a number, you call up a, 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 like a 555-1212 a information number, which is free, and, and then you blow it like this. And that just basically is the same thing as hanging up. You're hanging up on a trunk level and you go a little ka sound, and then if you want to dial two, you go one, three, and you dial a number. And that was basically how you make free phone calls. That's pretty impressive. In
4: a time when you had to pay for phone calls, this guy figured out a way to hack the system with a whistle that came out of a Captain Crunch box. So next, Draper created the Blue Box, an electronic device that would recreate tones similar to this whistle. So I built
5: a prototype of a Blue Box at home. I couldn't believe it. It worked. My parents thought I'd gone stark raving mad. And you can do just about anything with a blue box you can do as an operator. You can call the other operators. You can call routing codes. You can tap phone lines. You can route calls all over the world by just knowing what the routing codes are. And you can stack tandems. So once
4: a long distance call had been initiated and the phone company heard the 2600 hertz tone, it terminated the call, but only at one end. Now, the person at the open end of the line with the special whistle, or the blue box, had all the power of the telephone company operator. They could call anywhere free of charge in the world, or they could tie up phone lines of an entire city by stacking the lines. Here's a demonstration.
5: The number that's ringing at this point doesn't matter. What's important is that this call has gone over a trunk from New York to a distant 4A, which can be reset by 2600. That's the supervision handshake, off-hook, on-hook. And now it's waiting for new digits, which Ben will supply. That's the sound of Youngstown, Ohio, dumping us into a trunk to Canton. And that's the handshake from Canton. Now we're in Youngstown again, which stacks into Canton, and then Canton gives us the handshake.
4: While the implications of this now ancient technology might be lost on some of us now, back then it caught the
5: attention of Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. What happened basically at this point, um, the blind kids got a hold of somebody from Esquire magazine article. There was actually this guy Don Ballinger who got busted using blue boxes and uh, got real bitter toward the phone company and wanted to blow the whistle on the phone company and let everybody know about it. And uh, the phone freaks found out about it, and they contacted Don Ballinger, which is a bad mistake, and they told him about me, and then they wrote this Esquire magazine article called The Secrets of the Little Blue Box, October 1971 issue. And uh, Steve Wozniak got a hold of the magazine and uh, showed it to Jobs, and Steve says, let's build them and make them and sell them. (laughs) So that's what they did.
4: In fact, Steve Jobs' first job, or at least his first business— was selling blue boxes, the device that allowed users to get free phone service illegally. Not only that, but you could hack communication centers all over the world with the technology. Here's Steve Jobs. You could you know, call from a, a payphone, uh, go to White
6: Plains, New York, take a satellite to Europe, take a cable to Turkey, uh, come back to Los Angeles. Uh, and you go around the world three or four times and call the payphone next door and shout in the phone and be about 30 seconds and come out the other end of the, the other phone. So, we actually, and these were illegal, I I have to add. uh, But in spite of that, we were so fascinated by them that Woz and I actually figured out how to build one. We built the best one in the world. It was the first digital blue box in the world. And uh, we would uh, give them to our friends and use them ourselves. And You know, you you rapidly run out of people you want to call. But it it was the magic of the fact that two teenagers could build this box for $100 worth of parts and control hundreds of billions of dollars of infrastructure in the entire telephone network in the whole world.
4: But it seems like all fun and illegal things like this eventually come to an end.
5: John Draper, Captain Crunch, got busted. I got busted because somebody was using Waz's blue box. phone company detected it, and the person had my phone number and abused my privilege and wrote my phone number down, and that was how I got busted. Otherwise, I would have been pretty pretty safe even today because I was very careful. Captain Crunch ended
4: up serving two prison sentences for phone fraud while serving a third prison sentence. Draper set to creating the Easy Rider, the first word processor for the Apple II. While out on work release, he had access to a computer in a small studio, though sometimes he needed to take copies of his work home to prison so he could continue working on it.
3: Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again.
4: But the phone hacking mischief didn't end there for our old friend John Draper here. After prison, he made a fascinating discovery while scanning 800 numbers.
5: Maybe two or three years later, and uh, discovered a very interesting phone number. Uh, it was an 800 number that uh, later I discovered it to be the White House CIA crisis hotline number. And... Uh, There was a way to tap lines back then, so we sit in on a line and listen to it for a while, and it was on an unencrypted link. And uh, somebody said, Olympus, please, and the voice on the other end sounded remarkably like Nixon.
2: People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm
0: not a crook.
5: I wrote down Olympus, and two weeks later I went to a party and somebody wanted me to trade. Uh, Somebody had this really cool number, I wanted it, and phone freaks like to trade numbers. So I says, ah, I'll trade you a number. Would you like to have the, the CIA crisis hotline of the White House? And he says, you got what? <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him the number. But before I even had a chance to give him the number, he'd already stacked two or three, tent, two or three trunks in there calling the number. And he got, uh, got him on the line. And uh, he said, uh, sir, we have a national crisis on our hands here. He says, what's the nature of the crisis? He says, sir, we're out of toilet paper. They hung up. <laughs> First instance of punking uh, the president. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please
4: check the number and d- 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 dial again. And that's phone-freaking-extraordinaire, the one and only Captain Crunch, John Draper. This is Our American Stories. And thank you as always, Jesse.
0: As odd and irreverent as always, John Draper's story, Captain Crunch's story. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time... For our American Dreamers series, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And they're always fighting for policies that help small businesses turn into big ones. And for small business owners and entrepreneurs who ultimately live their version of the American Dream. And now we come to our next American Dreamers story, brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez.
7: The
8: book is tiered four. That's Dr. Luis Tomates, a world-renowned heart surgeon out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, who started a little after-hours tradition that he features in his book,
7: Tea at Four. At four o'clock, I have tea with cookies. And at the beginning, I will invite some people. And in a short time, they invite the people who heard about this. And now, four to five times a week, I have a guest to have tea. I had politicians come. The director of hospitals come, priests, rabbis, ministers, and I learn from each one of them. Really, I learn, I learn what, what are they thinking in this time, in this moment in America.
8: But in reality, he's more of a source of comfort and wisdom to his guests. And for good reason. Luis has lived a storied life. Now 90 years old, Luis was born in Argentina, where he served in its cavalry, played rugby, and attended medical school. At the age of 26 years old, he went to Detroit for his medical internship, studying at the Henry Ford Hospital, one of the first hospitals in the world to train open-heart surgeons. And they would train one of the
7: best. I couldn't have done this in Argentina. I couldn't have done this in Europe. If you could have done in Europe, why i am recruiting so many people from Europe to come here? And they don't come for the pay. I remember one of the researchers that I brought from Sweden, that was very is very well known in Europe as a researcher. I asked, "Why did you come here?" He said, "Luis, where I was, I was on the top. When I came to Grand Rapids, I am in the base." And this is a man that must be. 58, that assumed that it still has 20, 30 years to give. But in Europe, it was done. This is what don't, we don't realize in America, that we have this incredible gift to be whatever
8: we want to be. Louise moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he would also move his girlfriend from Argentina and marry her. At the time, Grand Rapids was a small place, Louise says only one restaurant was open on Sundays. Today, there are countless, in part because Louise helped put Grand Rapids on the map as a hub of the medical industry. It all started with the man whose life, Dr. Louise, would help save, Rich DeVos, the founder of the health, beauty, and home care products company, Amway. In his late 60s, Rich started developing heart problems and sought Louise's help. He underwent multiple bypass surgeries, but that
7: wouldn't be enough. We're following this and got the conclusion that there is no other solution than a transplant. There's no way we can repair that. I investigated the whole United States transplant, and I told them about a 71-year-old man with all the problems that he had, an infection that he got when he went to Cleveland that I had to repair three times. And everybody said, sorry, no dice. Nobody accepted in the United States. They don't operate people at that age without complications.
8: So Dr. Louise looked elsewhere. He found a doctor in Europe that agreed to do the operation. They were in luck. The only foreigners the team could work on were the ones with Rich's rare blood type because there were more heart donors in Europe with that blood type than recipients six to eight hearts would go unused a year in Europe. The operation would be a success and Rich would go on
7: to live another 21 years. The things he did in these 20 years were fantastic. He donated from his own money $1 billion. Rich was a visionary, but was not a man of details. After he bought the idea, he would say, do it. And he had absolute trust in the sense that he didn't say, okay, report to me or tell me, do it. And imagine the huge responsibility when he said, do it. And you did it, and he trusts me 100%. One day, Rich says, why don't we start transplant here? We decided, I said, Rich, if we are going to have transplant here, we should bring a top man in transplant to start, and then he will train everybody. At the time, Dr. Louise was a heart
8: and lung surgeon at Butterworth Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He brought over from Europe one of the best heart surgeons in the world, and got to work. They would create a team of heart surgeons that could rival the best in any major city in America. Meanwhile, Rich DeVos conducted the merger between Butterworth Hospital and another local hospital, creating what would become Spectrum Health, which is now a network of 14 hospitals across Michigan, employing 31,000 staff and 4,300 doctors and advanced healthcare professionals.
7: We'll sit down and say, well, finally, it happened, Rich. He, Rich would say, you did it. And I said, Rich. I didn't do it. We did it. Because if I would have done it alone, nobody would have listened. And Rich says, if, you, if we wouldn't have talked, I would have never thought of that. And that is why it was a perfect combination. The, the thing that I treasure the most is the trust that these men had on me. The trust.
8: Rich entrusted Dr. Louise with another task, make cardiovascular surgery more affordable. The two of them conducted some of the earliest medical cost-saving studies and found that most hospitals could afford to trim some fats, finding that they could save their patients upwards to 25% in cost. And so Spectrum Health responded. They are consistently in the lowest 25% of costs compared to hospitals of similar size in the nation, translating to prices that are significantly less than other hospital prices. This, Dr. Louise hopes, will encourage other hospitals to follow suit, making healthcare more affordable to more Americans.
7: There are many physicians that realize that we need this change. If we can change that, I can die happy. And in the
8: meantime, Dr. Luis sits down with people for T at 4 to help them with their happiness. He lets them talk their own way through their problems and ideas and drops nuggets of wisdom along the way.
7: Many of the people come and tell me, I, I think I found the girl or the boy who is going to make me happy. I said, would, be, would you be willing to put it in another way? I find a person that I can, happy, can make happy the rest of my days. If you think in that term, it will work. If you think in the other term, you may be frustrated. Love is giving, not receiving. You receive because you give. Which is exactly what Dr. Luis is
8: doing with all his guests. Giving them his time. Is energy, wisdom, and friendship.
7: I feel in some way I'm contributing. I've been surprised of people of very high positions that have to make important decisions and don't have anybody to talk about the important decision. And they need to be heard to help these, these people think, just to give some time peace for them. There are some people who have made terrible mistakes in their life. But life doesn't finish until they bury you. And, you know, and this applies especially many, many people, many minorities that feel they are very heavy, heavily loaded with their past. And I always tell them the same, look, you have only one life to live. One life to live. What you don't do in this period of life that you don't never know when it finishes, you will never do it before. And remember one thing: nobody cares. Remember one thing: if you are a failure, nobody cares. If you succeed, they will respect you and so on. But it's only in one life to live. If your grandmother was such, the, the, or. Nobody cares. They ask you, and what are you going to do in this period of life? This is why I'm eternal optimist. And you see in the back of the book is my philosophy. Age is inevitable, but to be old is optional.
0: And you've been listening to Dr. Luis Tomatis. My goodness, that final... Sentence is just terrific. Age is inevitable, but to be old is optional. Beautiful words. And by the way, Dr. Luis also worked with Rich's business partner, Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel, launching the $60 million Van Andel Institute in 1995 that does cutting-edge research on cancer epigenetics and Parkinson's disease. It's the kind of work that's contributed to making Grand Rapids what it is today. And by the way, you can find Dr. Tomatis' book, T at 4 at shulerbooks.com. That's shulerbooks.com. Our American Dreamers story, Dr. Luis Tomatis' story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us the voice of someone who's worked at the highest levels of two radically different yet similar jobs. You might not have expected it, given this beginning, this very early start of his life.
9: There was this lady named O.C. Pittsfield that was allowed to come into our home, and she became the lady that cared for me and took care of me. Instead of the Stockton kid, Earl Smith's mom. As a result of that, I really bonded with uh, O.C. Pittsfield, who I called Grandmama and she was like the protector for me my dad worked three jobs and he was my best friend and he still is even though he's passed away and in the midst of all of that as i grew up i felt a sense of rejection
10: especially around a memory of when he was four years old and he was sitting with his mom and her friends and earl noticed that the bottle for the newborn baby sitting on one of the ladies laps was empty and being told
9: shut up fool for what he said. I said that baby ain't got no milk and you know being slapped being embarrassed to the point that I wet my pants because the women and the women are laughing and I got slapped and I'm this little kid and I felt like wow it, it was a horrible feeling to be laughed at. I don't know what age people can go back and remember things from but when you're four years old and you can remember an incident like that, that puts a Print. It stamps something into your memory, into that memory bank that it just doesn't go away. And what I did not realize was my mom had her own stuff in her box, and she was trying to deal with her stuff, and I was part of the stuff that she wasn't quite sure how to maneuver through. A young lady in the South, married to an older man, not of your own choice as a result of that that guy is abusive to you and so she ran away
10: from him and she wasn't even 16 years old through all of this
9: and then she marries again And she's married my dad she has two daughters and a son and things are okay then she's pregnant with me you know my mom in actuality in hindsight had every reason in the world to be upset about this kid that shows up three and a half years after she finally quit having kids. She's in her early 20s and finally getting ready to have some kind of life after all these years and the cycle is getting ready to repeat. She's gonna to have to take care of this child. Her freedom is gonna be hindered once again. It's almost like she's gonna be shackled once again. And I represented shackles in my opinion as I think back on it. I represented shackles to her. And if I, in fact, represented shackles to her, her response to who I was was justified. Because when you're oppressed or shackled, the one thing you want to do is get out of the shackles or get away from the oppression. So my mom did not have the opportunity just to be a young girl, a, a young lady. I mean, Only later did I find that out, but when you're a kid you don't know that. You don't know what your parents have gone through, and here you are, and you're feeling total rejection because you're a kid, and all you want is to feel some kind of compassion, some kind of love, and you think you're not getting it, yet what I realized after the fact is she was giving me the best she had." And at least
10: he had O.C., until his mom decided that he wouldn't have
9: her either. I love this lady beyond reason, and and then one day I come home and she's not there, and and I'm like, where is she? Put her out. What does that mean? What does that mean that she's not going to be here at night when I lay down? What does it mean that that lady who was my one safety net, what does it mean when they say that she's no longer going to be available. You you don't understand what that You really have to understand what that lady meant to me. She Man, she was she was my answer. She's not here and you and don't go look for her. What does that mean don't go look for her? You know, if you lose a million dollars, you're going to look for it and she was worth much more than a million dollars to me so i found out where she lived and the word was if you go there and you find if you don't come straight home from school you know you're going to get a spanking so i weighed the two options be around her for a little while and feel the love that she had for me and get a spanking or just come home and not get a spanking i chose the spanking i chose it I fully understood when I got home, because I was coming home late, I was going to get a spanking. But I didn't care. And that's the other thing. You start as a kid to say, I don't care. And that can take you to some really dark places. It can really take you to dark places when you realize as a very young age, I don't care. We had University of Pacific that was in Stockton and in We'd go over there and find a bike and ride home on it. <laughs> you know, and from the bicycle, you steal a car. Because you could steal a bike, you could steal a car. Stabbed a guy that was actually a friend of mine at eight years old and just doing crazy things as a way basically to let this anger that I felt out. And I didn't understand it. Kids don't understand why they do what they do. Until later in life you find out Oh that's what they call that That's why you did that
0: And you're listening to Earl Smith And what a remarkable voice he has And straight as an arrow He's telling the story as he recalls it now And with real compassion When we come back We'll continue with Earl Smith's story And as always we cover these stories About love and the lack thereof Because Well it defines a life particularly love's absence. Earl Smith's story continues here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and with Earl Smith's story. Feeling abandoned by his mom, Earl tried to fill this hole in his heart and fill it with crime.
9: The other thing my dad did for me was he took me to a field one day. I must have been like, eight or die. And he takes his pistol out and he puts some stuff out and he starts shooting and hitting the stuff. He says, you want to try? And when I put that pistol in my hand, and I fired it. I cannot believe how that felt to me, to fire that gun. And it was all, the, the addiction of the sound of a gun in my hand is something I have not forgotten, even to this day. And it became a very bad thing that he considered to be a good thing he was doing, but it was a bad thing that I felt so great about, the sound of that gun and it being in my hand. Because I was already, at eight or nine years old, I was already committed to being doing aberrant things. I was already committed to being different than other people in my household. I was already committed. I did not have a problem with the streets. I didn't have a problem with crime at eight or nine years old. And the gun part was just power. I knew how to, I learned how to shoot a gun. I learned what it sounded like when I shot it. And for me, that was a power. So I'm not saying that it was wrong that he did it because he didn't understand what feeling that gave me the first time I did it. It's almost like if you use drugs, if you if you shoot dope, you're not going to remember what it felt like. Everyone says, hey, you want to get high, so you get high, and the reason you become addicted is because you keep trying to chase the first high you had. And for me, my addiction was keeping keep chasing the feeling of the first time I fired that gun. I mean, one time a guy almost, my dad and I were in the street and this guy swerves this car like he's trying to hit us. My dad jumps out the way I grab. And you know, it's like the guy is laughing and hooting and hollering as he goes down the street. My dad goes to get the gun. I take the gun from him. And uh, I hide it again. Then I find the guy and we lived by the railroad tracks and I just, I mean—I beat the guy and I left him on the tracks to get hit by a train because of what he had done to my dad. And I kept the gun and I told everybody, I got this gun. If anybody moves him, I'm going to shoot you.
10: Earl was also a gang member, a pretty big drug dealer around U.S. Route 99 and a college student.
9: You know, part of the... Part of this 99 Corridor deal is, you go from Turlock all the way to Sacramento, and if you can have a drug trade through that whole corridor, back in the day, you're really being successful. We had an apartment in Turlock, we had one in Modesto, we had one in Stockton, and you had people that lived in Sacramento, and every weekend we'd go to different cities for the parties, and we'd do all of that, but we developed this corridor, so Stanislaus State, San Joaquin Delta College, Sac City College. Uh, people were at different schools. And so everybody was really really educated, really smart. It wasn't just that we were crazy people. It was, we were, we were pretty smart. So we we're all in school and we we're all doing different things. I think all of us end up getting our degrees, at least on uh, bachelor degrees. And from there we, you know, some of us have, uh, advanced degrees but we were okay but so it was almost like we were a group that did two things and somewhere in the midst of that
10: Earl would visit his old nanny who we considered a grandmother
9: OC the thing that was so great about this lady was that she never moved more than half a mile away from her house she always found someone that would let her rent a room that she would be close by me. She was that person until she went into the nursing home. She was still living that close to that house I grew up in when she finally was in the nursing home. She made a point of being close enough to me that I could. And you know, here's the deal. When you're when you're a criminal, when you're committing crime, when you're a gang member, you know, yeah, yeah, for me. I tell people all the time, you know, there's a difference in gang membership and gang banging. And gang banging is when you're actually in the process of the stuff. Membership is what you're a part of. And I could separate the two and never, I tell people, yes, I'm a gang member. 64 years old, I'm a gang member because that's what I was. That's what my commitment is. And that doesn't change. I don't bang. So when I went to see my grandmother as a, when I was much younger, I did not, it didn't change that I was a part of a gang, but the person that she saw, I I would always make sure I had a haircut. I'd always make sure that I looked presentable and I would always make sure that when I went to see her, I planned to spend time with her and I would not be in a hurry to leave because I did not want to disrespect her and her memory by any action, so I may have done something the night before, but if I, it was always like almost like a calendar. I knew when it was time to go see her. If I went more than two weeks, it was a problem, and she knew it was a problem. So I couldn't, I couldn't let like two, three, a month go by, and I didn't go see her because I was in all the other junk. No, sometimes the junk had to pause because she was still a priority, and it was it was a calendar voice. I knew, because if, if she didn't know I was okay, it, it would trouble her beyond measure.
10: And yet he put himself into situations that could trouble her.
9: Well, I'd been off at the golf course of 19 years old, and we were doing a big deal. So we went out to the golf course so we could sort of talk about it where no one, we knew no one was around because we knew we were being followed and watched. Uh, so my gun was in my golf bag. Other gun was under my bed. And so I, but the World Series is on. So I have to get home in time to watch the game. So I leave my clubs in the car and run in the house and I turn the TV on, knock on the door guy says, I came to pay you. He owed me some money and he was late. And so I put the word out. Whenever you see him, let him know that he owes me. He's late and I got to deal with him. Once again, I knew the guy, I knew the kid. I, 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 I started him off selling and now business dictated that because you didn't handle your part of it. I got to do something to you and you know what that meant. So then he gets someone along with some other people and they convince this other person, okay, if you kill him, the problem will be solved. So this guy, Stevie comes, I don't even know the guy, never seen him before in my life, but he's with this guy that owed me the money. And they come in, I say, well, sit down. Cause I'm watching a game and I needed to really process what I was gonna have. I had to do something. I sort of liked the guy, but I knew I had to do something because personally, I liked him. Business dictated I had to do something to him. And as I'm sitting there, he sort of makes a motion like he's pulling the trigger with a finger. And the guy he's with, while I'm watching the World Series, he just gets up and takes a gun and starts shooting me. And so, no gun up under my uh, couch. No, No gun in the living room. Uh, So now I'm dodging, trying to dodge bullets, and I grab a coffee table. The bullet goes through a coffee table, it hits me, and he has six bullets in the gun. He hits me all six times. I'm shot in my face, my neck, my shoulder, my back, because I'm sort of turning and spinning, and one bullet goes in and comes back out, so I have seven holes in me, and then he stands over me clicking the gun, and the guy that brought him there said, come on, let's go, he's done. And they walk away.
0: And it doesn't get more compelling than this, folks. You're seeing it, you're feeling it, you're hearing it from Earl Smith, the consequence of many bad decisions and the consequence of the abandonment of love from a young man. And these are the things that happen, these are the stories that you hear here regularly. And we tell them not to depress you and not to do anything but ultimately inspire you. When we come back, you're going to hear the redemption story to follow. And it is remarkable because how one rises from this circumstance. And my goodness, it's, there is no worse circumstance perhaps than the one this young man is facing. And by the way, the way he was able to separate his life out and go see Osi and just just sort of man up and straighten up but then right back to the pull of that life, the only life he knew, the only life that was organized around any kind of meaning, camaraderie, or all the other things. We've heard countless times here stories from gang members who say that that's the love they did not get from their family. When we continue Earl Smith's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and with gang member Earl Smith's story of finally being on the receiving end of gunfire.
9: The other part that really was sort of weird, when you're on the other end of the gun, when you're firing it and you feel the vibration in your hand as you pull the trigger and the sound sort of travels through your hand, through your arm, up into your ears and into your heart the sound of a gun when you shoot it actually almost it 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 seems like it for me it was hitting my heart and it became part of that but now i'm getting shot and i know exactly like how some people must have felt when you get shot it's just like you have a poker a hot poker that's been sitting in fire that is poked into different parts of your body. And the only thing I kept thinking is I need water, I'm hot, I'm burning up, I'm burning up, I need water, I need water. It was just like these hot pokers were like in my face, there were hot pokers where I'd been shot and in my neck, there's hot pokers and my chest, there's hot, I'm just like, someone has taken a Branding Iron poker and poked it all the way into me so it went through me and it stopped at a point, and that point it stopped at is like, I'm on fire. But I'm not on fire in one spot. I'm on fire in a lot of spots at the same time. And it, it's almost like you would take a flame and put it inside of someone's body and allow it to continue to burn. I mean, think about this. So the, the police have me under surveillance. They're getting ready to bust me. So, they're on a corner, an unmarked car. These guys come in. I'm shot numerous times. My neighbor said they didn't know if it was firecrackers or what was going on. They could just hear bam, 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 bam. And then they leave and they walk out, still under surveillance on the corner over there. I get up. I knock on my neighbor's door and say, can you call the police? I've been shot. She starts screaming. She calls the police. They're there in no time at all because, you know, wow, of course they're going to be there in no time at all. They come in. They walk right past me. They don't say a word to me. They start going through my house. And then they leave. Another set comes in, and the lady, Miss Lorraine, says, well, where's the ambulance? And I heard them tell her, lady, if you want an ambulance for him, you call her. They were so, and that's the thing that people don't understand. There comes a point when even the authorities get tired of you. They get tired of what you're getting away with. And at some point they believe that death is the easiest thing to deal with because they no longer have to deal with a person like me. So she had to call the ambulance and I'm on this gurney and they, they, they make it real clear that, uh, I'm not going to make it. They make it very clear, and I just need to tell the police who shot me. Well, I wasn't gonna tell. I had no intention of telling. And Dr. Morris, he says, I don't know what's wrong with you people. It was another person that was laying on a gurney in his emergency room, and the police were saying, tell us who did it. It was like, and it's, it's sort of crazy, but it's not crazy. I'd rather die, and at least they could say he didn't tell, Wow, man, what a great name. He went to the grave without telling. (laughs) What kind kind of badge is that? What what badge did you get for that? Uh, But when you grow up a certain way, that's what you believe. And me saying I'm going to die or whatever, here's the deal about that, that I tell people. I deserve to die. For what the things I was involved in, the things that I had done up to that point, I fully understood I deserved it. And I deserved what the doctor said. I deserved that. I deserved whatever would have taken place in that day. Because I had worked really hard to get to that point. My dad comes in and he asks Dr. Morrissey, how bad is he? He says, he ain't. he's not gonna make it. And my dad grabs him around the collar very gently, but he pulls him close to him and he pulls him close to me. He says, doc, you better do what you do best and I'm gonna go do what I do best. He left me on that gurney, but he left me to go pray with the understanding that that doctor's job was to help me. If you think think about my dad having this significant name in the community. His dad was a union leader. Chief of police knows who he is, John McFall, who was majority whip in Congress back in those days, would come to the House and visit with my dad. And I called him Uncle John. And senators, Kranz and I cower, they would come because they needed my dad's support for stuff. So he was significant. But when I got shot, my dad said, Son, this is bad. We're going to make it. He said, Son, you're a rebel, but you're God's rebel, and we're going to get through this. He didn't say you. He said we're. That was the love he had for me. He was wounded because I was wounded. And I wasn't gonna get through it, we were gonna get through it. That was the dad. That's my dad. And in between those exits of the doctor going back wherever he went, and my dad going to pray, and there I'm just laying They're all, you know, I'm laying there waiting to die. That's what, they, they're waiting on me to die. And then this voice says to me, you're not going to die I have something for you to do. I started laughing. The something was be a chaplain in San Quentin. The prison that's home to the largest death row in America. That's what he told me. So I'm sort of shaking now, and they have these monitors on me. And the doctor comes in. I said, Doc, if I tell you where the bullets are, will it help? Now, remember, my dad's over there praying. He's nowhere at this point now. But he's praying. And... The doctor says, no, I said, so I pointing at my nose. I said, it's, it's, one, it's right here and the bleeding stops. And as I started to point to where the bullets were, the bleeding stopped. I believe the combination of that doctor leaving, the voice of the Lord telling me, I'm not going to die. I have something for you to do. And my dad away praying, he had enough confidence in who God was that he could talk to God and trust that God was going to take care of this, his son that was a rebel. And that's, he, so he, he, he was not afraid to leave because he had confidence that God could do what he could only do best. And three days later, my dad picks me up from the hospital, he, you know, he parks the car, that gets me in the car, and you think that was cool, my dad can go back to what he's doing. No, you know what my dad did every day after that until I got up and strong enough? My dad sat in a chair at the door of my bedroom. And every time I woke up, I saw my dad sitting there with his gun. Now, when I slept, I don't know what he did, but I can tell you this. When I was awoke, my dad would sit, uh, when I look, he would be in that chair. He was guarding me, he's making sure that this thing didn't happen again. And that was my dad. And after all the embarrassments I'd done, for, I was embarrassed. I did some crazy things. And my dad kept loving me in spite of it. Kept loving me.
10: Earl goes on to Bishop College in Dallas to study religion and become a prison chaplain. But his counselors there told him that this goal was unrealistic given his criminal background. So they advised him to take a job with
9: the Boy Scouts of America. People that say, well, that God voice thing is... Crazy! It didn't happen. Let me. Let here's what I need them to understand. In October of 1975, God says to me, "You're not gonna die. You're gonna be a chaplain in San Quentin Prison." I'll tell you how God works. I'm at a I'm at a service club for Kiwanis. Um, Buzz Brewer, who worked for the Salvation Army as a, a correctional chaplain. says, hey, didn't you say you wanted to be a a prison chaplain? I said, yeah, you know how you do an introduction at the Kiwanis clubs to tell who you are and what you're interested in. And he remembered that. He says, well, there's an opening at San Quentin. Uh, You should apply. He says, now they said they're going to hire this other guy, but at least you could apply. And I said, okay. He comes back three weeks later and says, hey, did you ever apply? I said, nah, not yet. I'm going to get around to it. He says, I didn't think so. Here's the application. Fill it out. I fill the application out. I get a response from the state personnel board and it says, Dear Reverend Smith, I'm sorry to inform you that you do not meet the minimum requirements for the position. I ball it up, throw the paper down, and the voice of the Lord says, once again, call him and ask him what you need to do. It's a test. I unball the paper. I call this number on the paper. There's a silent voice on the other end. And then the lady says, Reverend Smith, we're very sorry. We sent you the wrong letter. You are qualified. Well, I was qualified in 75 the night I got shot. And he said, that's what I was going to do. I was already qualified. So then I get the new letter. I go to the interview. The guy that they're going to hire says, are you here for San Quentin? I said, yeah. He says, well, you can forget it. They've already promised me the job. I said, "Okay. well, I just need to go ahead and go through the process. He doesn't know anything about me. I now I knew about him. Well, here's the way it worked. He worked there for five and a half months on probation and then they decided not to hire him and when they decided not to hire him they then called me and asked me was I still interested. The guy that they decided not to hire became a volunteer that I trained and he became a phenomenal chaplain and we both agreed it was not that he was not qualified to be a chaplain he was just at a place that God had already reserved for me. So whatever you say about the voice, exactly what I told people God said is what happened. So if when you put it all together, wouldn't you believe that God, you'd have to believe that voice too, wouldn't you? And when I'm hired to go to work there, I remember walking into the chapel and I look around as I'm walking in, I see a guy making a drug transaction over by the bathroom. I see something else taking place. And then I realized, thank you, God, this is where I need to be, because everything I saw, I could understand. And then right after that, the prison went on lockdown because cause of another killing. And so 13 of the next 16 months, I was there. The majority of those 13 or 16 months, they were locked down. And I started having to go to the cell blocks to see guys. So I wasn't like there and everybody was in church and you know I was like wow is this what it's gonna be like and so I started going out and talking to guys I talked I had no problem talking to gang leaders that was the that was the training I had and you know then that December of my first year there I'm still six months in I still haven't done my six months probation I'm giving out Christmas cards and on my unit and I'm giving these Christmas cards out and I saw a guy once when he shot me. I saw him once in court. I didn't testify against him because I wanted to kill him, and I went, but I needed him on the street. And the third time I see this guy in my entire life, he's now on the second tier of North Block in San Quentin, and no one knows he's the guy that shot me. And I don't know that he's there till I'm giving out Christmas cards. And I remember, and I'm only telling the story because it's part of what God can do in bringing things to pass and making clarity out of rough situations. And you think that you're okay. You think that God has really gotten you smooth. I'm a chaplain now. What so what if I was a drug dealer? So what if I'm a gang member? So what if I'd done all that other stuff? God has blessed me beyond measure. Then all of a sudden here's what happens. I see this guy. And when I see this guy, I realize I really had not forgiven him. It was just talk. I was angry I looked at him. He jumped away from the bars. He said, hey, man, uh, I got shot too because I knew that a guy knew shot him. The guy that shot him recently died in prison. He was doing a life sentence. So he gets away from the bars. I keep on giving out these Christmas cards. And I'm crying now because I realize I really have not forgiven this guy. And now he's in a situation. All I need to do is tell somebody from home, that's the guy that shot me and it's a done deal. And I was thinking, God, why would you make me feel I was okay, that everything was all right to get me to this point, now I'm gonna have him killed. I mean, you think about this, you learn about all these things if you go to college or seminary, and forgiveness is this, and you release it, you forgive and you forgive. How many times you heard forgive and forgive? Well, it sounds good, but when you're confronted by that thing that's caused you harm or pain is when you realize, do you forgive? And even when in the midst of your forgiveness, have you really forgotten? For me, it was not only had I not forgiven, but it was forgetting about it was for removed, because when I saw him, I realized that he had got away with doing something to me that I had not retaliated for. And I'm a chaplain and I'm thinking like that. And I'm like thinking, God, why did you let me get here to think like this? That was the kind of thinking, thinking that I had when I was in the world. And here I was thinking that same way as soon as I saw him. And it it was, it was a very scary moment for me. And that's why I just cried. I was just like, what is going on? Why would you let this guy be here? why would you allow me to be confronted with him knowing that I really had not forgiven him? Why would you make me think I forgave him? You ever have a conversation with God where you're trying to rationalize what you're dealing with and, and, and it's almost like you're angry with God because you can't understand why God would make you feel like you were further along than you really are. And you're troubled by the fact that you're not as far along as you thought you were. And that's when I saw that guy, that's where I was. The thing that's so great about God is he takes you to the end and calls you to have to pass over that thing to get back off. Sometimes you get to the end and to get away, you have to go back or pass the thing that you crossed over on the journey. And as I go back in front of this guy, look at him. And I said, I need to say something to you. And he's He's terrified basically, I said, I need to thank you because God used you to get to be. I don't even know where those words came from. I left there, I went to my chapel, I sat down in my chair in my office and I just started crying. Well, what I didn't know is he wrote a letter to the warden and says, you gotta get me out of this prison. The chaplain's gonna have me killed. So they called me in for investigation. They said, do you know this guy? I said, yeah, I just realized he's here. Well, he wrote this letter saying you're going to have him killed. And I said, and it was George Jackson, who was the associate warden. That was over. That was my boss. And I said, Mr. Jackson, I'll tell you this right now, today, this is the safest place that guy will ever be because he's not a threat to me. The only thing I want him to know is who Jesus is. And he looks at me. Remember, I'm on probation. They could have did me like they did Leonard. And just say, okay, go home. We're not going to hire you. But you know what they did? This is the week of Christmas. They put him in a special transport and sent him to another prison so I could stay there. Now, what if I would have had any other reaction other than the one I had when I encountered him? And I believe that was another test because from there, God just, he did so many amazing things at that prison. Amazing things. But what happens with that test if I say, well, you know what, I'm going to have my people get to you. I'm going to have my people do this to you or something like that. What if I did that? But instead, I said what God had placed on my heart to say to him. And I believe that was the reason why I was able to stay at San Quentin, because I I passed that test.
0: And you're listening to Earl Smith's story and those words he heard on October of 1975. God says to me, you're not going to die. You're going to be a chaplain at San Quentin Prison. And it happened. By the way, there's so much more to Earl Smith's story that you can read about in his powerful book titled Death Row Chaplain, Unbelievable True Stories from America's Most Notorious Prison. Get it at Amazon.com today. And at the very beginning of the story, we teased that Earl worked at the highest levels of two radically different and yet similar jobs. One as a chaplain for St. Quentin's prisoners, and the other as the chaplain for millionaire athletes. Or was the chaplain for the San Francisco Giants, and he is still the chaplain for the Golden State Warriors and the 49ers. But millionaire athletes and prisoners often come from the very same neighborhoods and are dealing with the very same human brokenness that affect us all. Earl Smith's story, here